glad you're here today. I'm glad the air conditioning is working because there was a question about that early on. So I don't think I've, I stopped and prayed for it. I think God was just merciful to us. <laughs> it's working good, but we're going to have to probably have it checked out. Uh, well, it's good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here today. I'm really uh, excited about what God has for us. Uh, just a, an announcement that two weeks from today, we're going to have our annual business meeting. Yeah, it's six months after it was scheduled. It was supposed to be the last Wednesday of March, and then on you know what happened on March 17, everything got shut down. So uh, we've had the, the business report and everything just waiting to take place. So it's going to happen uh, September the 20th, Sunday night at 6 p.m. We'll just keep the building like this. We'll still be under those protocols, so we'll honor that. But I'm so glad to have you here this morning. Uh, I'm not going to try to take you through a history of this book, the Word of God, but what a history behind this book. Um, and I'm going to, I could go on and on about it, but I know you're not really wanting me to go on and on about it because you could spend hours about this book. I've got a little book, I, I meant to bring it out here with me, it's called Fire and Blood. It's a history of the English translation of the Bible. It was first printed in 1890. Now, my copy is not printed in that first printing. It was, uh, I think, 1980-something. Three guys decided to, to redo it because some of the words have changed since 1890. But it's an amazing journey how you and I have a copy of the Holy Scriptures. This is the Word of God. And uh, nearing the end of his life, I'm going to take you to um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you don't want to turn there. And when I get there, Shane will put them on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. But near the end of his life, this is uh, Paul. He was the uh, a foreknown Saul of Tarsus, just an adversary of the church. It's just such a great story that he becomes one of the greatest advocates of the church. But uh, he's, he's nearing the end of his life, and he knows it. I mean, there's no way around when he gets to the talking about, you know, uh, you know, the time of my departure is near. He knew he was incarcerated in a Roman cell, and he knew that his execution was coming. Didn't know exactly when, but he knew it was imminent. So he's writing the very final contribution that he has from God inspiring him, and it is to a personal friend, a co-laborer, a student, now a church leader, Timothy. And this is Timothy's second letter, but it's Paul's last letter. And uh, chapter 3 is kind of interesting. If you see it, chapter 3, uh, the very first verse talks about there's going to be terrible times in the last days. It's, it's the eschatology, it's eschatos there. He's talking about how it's going to look in the end and all of the trouble. And so here's this last day eschatological approach that, Paul is writing, and I guess you would be. When you know that you're nearing the end of your life, you're kind of like trying to wrap everything up at once under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So when, when he's talking about this, you would think that he just kind of brings it to a close, but he doesn't. He talks about how the, the conditions will, will be and how awful things might be because he said it's terrible things. But in, the, in that part of that chapter we're going to get to here in just a moment, 
And when you get down, he shifts gears completely. It's like he changes from talking about the end times to talking about Timothy and what he needs to do to stay in tune with what he knows to be true. Now, what happens, what he writes in the latter part of this chapter finds its way in every doctrinal statement of every organization, every Christian organization. And way, way back, 106 years ago in Hot Springs, Arkansas, the Assemblies of God came together, 300 people from different tastes and backgrounds. They, they just arrived and says, you know, can we come to a place of agreement doctrinally? Uh, one of the reasons they meant is that they wanted to uh, form a plan to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But they also knew they needed to make a doctrinal statement. And if you look up ag.org and go to beliefs, you'll find those 16 statements that they carved out. says, this kind of expresses what we believe as a fellowship. And the very first one has a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is how it reads. This is verse 15. He tells him, and says, From infancy, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here it is, verse 16. All Scripture, this is what you'll read if you turn and find that first statement of fundamental truths. All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired of God. It's actually the literal word theos and the verb to breathe. It's God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He would later tell him, preach the word. And that's what we are told as ordination candidates in our fellowship. When we go to be ordained, it gets to that point where the order is preach the word. Declare this book. But I want to take you to a verses just before that that kind of fits in with the whole narrative. In verse 12, it reads like this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, that's encouraging. But that's true. If you're going to live a separate life unto God, that's just not going to fly with some people. Because you're going to be a killjoy. You're going to be like, you, you can't have any fun. Do you people ever have any fun? I don't think having fun is getting arrested for a DUI. I just, I just don't think that's any fun. I would rather take what my dad said to me when I was a teenager and I had my driver's license. He said, son, there's nothing good that can happen to you after 11 o'clock at night. So you know what that meant. You, you, need, to be, you need to be in the hacienda before 11 o'clock but we 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 have fun but he says if you live godly in christ jesus you're going to find yourself in places where you're persecuted for that and he tells timothy that while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived but as for you here's this personal challenge i picked it up in verse 15 but you have to go back to verse 14 but as for you continuing what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And then he said, from a child, from infancy. So he knew that Timothy had the advantages of godly parents, especially his mom and his grandmother. So he was in a multi-generational Christian family. And he knew Timothy had, had this drilled into him from being a child. He says, you, however, I want you to go back to verse 10. 
because he's telling Timothy to remember what I've went through so that you can face what you're going through because you will have persecution. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, he's telling him, he says, you're going to run across ways with people and it's not going to be good. There's going to be times you will be persecuted, you will suffer. In verse 10, he says, you, however, know all of my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, also my persecutions, my sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch. And he kind of goes back to this memory of some of the cities that he was just totally mistreated and beaten up. Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. And as we were singing that song, Faithful to the End, I was like, Paul could have written the lyrics to that song. The Lord has been faithful to me to the end. And that's not what the scripture says, but that's, that reverberated in my mind. He says, the Lord rescued me from all of them. Not just the Lord was in the midst of my sufferings, he was in the midst of my persecution, but also the love and the patience and my purpose and faith, my way of life, everything about me, the Lord has been right in the middle of it. Paul had, had endured such horrific treatment. You know, that he, he gave a list of the things. How many times he had, he had been beaten and stoned and shipwrecked? How many times he's been out in the water and didn't know if he was going to survive? And here he is toward the end of his life. He's being mistreated by his fellow Jews and the Roman government is about to execute him. And he points to Timothy and he says, basically he says, stick to this. Now, what was he talking about? Stick to the scriptures. He was talking about the Old Testament. There wasn't a word in the New Testament written when he was, he was writing the New Testament when he wrote it. There was no collection of scripture from the gospels the Gospels would come after some of the epistles. So there was, he was telling them, hang on to the scriptures, the Old Testament. Hang on to that book. Stick with it. This is what you've been taught. This is what you have learned. And if you go back to the very first words of the Pentateuch, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It all starts from just telling us, boom, there it is. In the beginning, God, out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing created everything, created the universe. And if you go from Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and all the way through chapter 11, and up to chapter 11, you're covering a bunch of history. It's amazing how abbreviated Moses is writing about that period of time. It's no telling how many years. You know, I've been pulled in by people question. I've been to a, I've been to a gathering up at Evangel University several years ago, and and there was a big debate in one of those classes about whether the Earth is old or young. And I was sitting at a table, and of course, that's kind of like it's almost like a can uh, cancel, you know, temperament around that table. And they looked at me and says, "What is your perception?" I said, "About what?" I said, "How old the Earth is?" I said, "I don't know." And I don't care. I don't, I don't know why it's so important. Well, it's, it's absolutely important. I says, why? All I know is that God did it. However long it took for him to do it, I don't care. It was like, well, you're just a reprobate. <laughs> and these was people, these were other ministers. Like, why do I have to pick one? Because I do not care. And I still don't care. Nobody's ever yet made me care about how old the earth is. I just know that God created it, and he made it. And the history of that leads us into his plan to redeem it. 
that's very much more important as to what do you think? Was it 6,000, 8,000, 10,000? Some say 2 million. And I don't know how in the world they come to that. I think probably it was 1.8 million, not 2 million. We're only talking about a couple hundred thousand years. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I shouldn't even get into that. But here's the abbreviated history in 10 chapters. He covers all of this, and then he gets in chapter 11, and lo and behold, things start really taking shape. It's when a kid is born in Chaldea by the name of Abram, and does it kick into motion? Him leaving Chaldea, and God calling him, and him, he's arriving with his wife Sarah in the land that God says, see, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you all that, and he didn't own any of it except a cemetery plot. When he died, that's all he owned. And yet God was telling him, I'm going to give you everything you look wherever you look. Every place you put your foot, I'm going to give it to your family. And then right after that, it's not long after that, we arrive around chapter 14, and, and it gets into the calling of Moses. Uh, all of this is kind of like chapter 40, and then you get toward the end of, of the book of Genesis, and it's covered like just a small brief time of history. It's like really a bulk of history at the front end of Genesis. And here's just a very small, narrow window. And lo and behold, Moses is on the scene in Exodus. Can you fathom that? Four out of the five books of the Pentateuch is about the history of Moses and the people going into the promised land. That's it's The whole thing is about it. Why would, why would we give that kind of record? 1,500 years is figured from the time Moses was writing the Pentateuch to when John finished the revelation of Jesus. 1,500 years. The Bible, the record of the Bible, the history of this book is about 1,500 years in authorship. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of things to, to make note of because there's, there's all kind of, in, in high, high theological circles, when, when really the smart people, the smartest people on the face of the earth, say that Moses could have never written the Pentateuch because the Hebrew language wasn't even existence when Moses was on site. And this was why they dismissed it. There's no record of the Hebrew language being, that there was no record of alphabet and lo and behold archaeology started doing a number on that and i'm going to give you i'm going to give you something to write down if you i wish i could get everyone connected to things like patterns of evidence with timothy maloney mahoney rather timothy mahoney is is done all these archaeological finds on site and you ought to patterns of evidence write it down because there was record of characters on the walls of caves that date back to that that have a similar look to the alphabet of the Hebrew language. Well, I think we can lay it to rest by this one evidence. Jesus said that Moses wrote that. Okay. I don't know what an archaeologist or a theologian in Princeton University thinks, but I'm going to take Jesus' word that Moses wrote this. And he wrote it as the inspired word of God. So everything in this book, this is an amazing book. 
it's really a miracle book. When Paul wrote to the people in Rome, he talked about the power of this book. I want to take you to Romans chapter 10. And that he was telling them the power of this word. How, And again, he's writing the Bible. He doesn't, I don't think any of them realized when they were writing this as like, oh, I'm, I'm adding to the Bible. They were writing epistles to people and to churches. Even the gospels, they believe, were all written in a way for a certain audience. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And God is doing this. Can you think about this being the total, complete, revealed word of God? Right here in this book, just that thick. You, you think it would be this thick. But he selected the things in here so that we would have all that he knew we needed to do what he wanted us to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 10, some of the great verses, I'm going to start with verse 8, but I want you to hear the emphasis on the word of God here, the inspired word of God. What does it say? The word is near you. It's the word rhema, not logos. This is the written, the spoken word. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Scripture says anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That's a very important statement there because it lets you know that what he's writing is not just directed to one group of people. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching the gospel to them? And you know what? This is old times with church right here. When parents take kids out for a Jesus moment. This is old, this is old time. I, this is kind of church I grew up in. You, you just didn't want a Jesus meeting in the middle of the service. Lord help her. Help him to be easy on her. Verse 15. And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those. I want you to stay with me. Pay attention because he does something here so neat. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Where does that come from? You know what reference it is. Isaiah 53 of all chapters Paul pulls out that place in Isaiah that he just clarifies that the suffering servant is going to come as a sacrifice. And he threads this in with the, he's writing scripture and he's pulling scripture into back what he's saying. Consequently, faith comes by hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And I know if you're in a King James, this is in, in the word of God. The translators really didn't do that justice because it's Christos. It's just not Theos, just for a point. This is why sometimes it's better to just check other translations. 
So listen, this is not a subtle thing. He just doesn't, by happen chance, bring in Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed our report, who has believed our message. And it's kind of like Billy Graham. Billy Graham in that unmistakable voice. You can hear his voice in your head if you just think about it. This kid from rural North Carolina gets saved as a reluctant teenager and God just raises that guy up, preaches all over the world, preached in the Soviet Union, in China. But again and again, during his messages, he would say this. I wish I could say it like he said it. The Bible says, all through, the Bible says, the Bible says, and it's been within the time frame I've been pastoring here that I actually heard a, another pastor in this city say that we cannot replicate what Billy Graham says because if the people that we're talking to don't believe in the Bible, that doesn't work with people anymore. But the Bible says <laughs> that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Bible says that. We got to trust the Bible to penetrate anybody's resistance. We can't try to figure out, well, I wonder where their resistance is. I wonder how I can get through their resistance. The Bible will penetrate any of their resistance. It did, it did for people like C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, an avowed atheist. And the Bible penetrated that man's life. I'm just telling you, in a, in a way, we can trust this book to penetrate whatever audience you're talking to, whoever you're talking to, the Holy Spirit can penetrate their lives. And then you go to watch Paul preaching in Athens at Mars Hill, and he didn't have many, many conversions there. And someone said, well, he, he just kind of probably came across the wrong way. We had no idea. We had no idea how many of those people a week later or two months later or a year later got to thinking about what he preached on and came to the Lord. We had no idea. A lot of people don't get saved the first time they hear the gospel. It doesn't resonate with them. It's, it's, it's just words. It, it, and you know when you got saved, it was, wow, he's right in front of me. He's talking to me. He's not talking about me. He's talking to me. The Bible's not talking about me. It's talking to me, and we come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because the Word of God is powerful. Listen to what Paul had to say in that great chapter. It's uh, chapter, four, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. I love this chapter. It is, it's the best description about how we're going to get resurrected, what kind of body you're going to have. I don't know if you think about that, but I think about that. What, how old are we going to look? How, how, are we going to look age at all? I don't know. Brother Harley Ulrich, an old prophecy teacher, used to say, we're going we're gonna to look like we're 30 years of age. Said, how do you know that? Said, Somewhere what Jesus looked like when he was resurrected. So we're going to look like him. I said, well, you, you got scripture to back that. We, and when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, right? So, getting young again, I'll take that. But listen to the beginning words of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And we're talking about the word of God penetrating people's lives. He says, here's the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. 
by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Verse 3, for what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ, what he's about to give you is the basic gospel, the basic components of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, what does it say? According to the scriptures, what is he referencing? The Old Testament. He's saying the scriptures have told us this. This was his reference point. And then he says, and he was buried. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500. And most of them still living. And he appeared to James, to all the apostles. And I like verse 8. And he says, last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born or born out of due time. He said, I got in on the action late, but at least I got in on the action. I saw him. Or I tried to see him. His eyes got blinded by You see, the church cannot save us. The church cannot save you. The church cannot save anyone. Because the church didn't die on the cross for anyone. The church didn't pay the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. It's only Jesus. Jesus is the one who died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And according to the scriptures, that's the only way to be saved. And this book is laden with the power of God. It is filled with the power of God. When we declare the gospel... I like what Paul said, I think it's in Romans 1, when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. What he's saying is the gospel that he just described, that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again, according to Scripture, he says, when you declare that to people, it has the power of God within it to bring about conversion. We don't have to convert anyone. We don't do a very good job when we try that anyway. It's the Lord that converts people through the word. How important is this book? 20 years ago when I was in Russia and I was teaching in um, the Habara Seminary, I was told that the Bibles they had, the Russian Bibles they had, were not translated from the original language. They were translated from English version. And I mean, no, that's not good. Because when you go from one translation to a translation to another translation, you're not getting what the original was really saying. So there was this great effort to translate the Bible into languages all around the world. I don't know if you're familiar with with translators. A wonderful organization. A great missionary group. In fact, we ought to be supporting them in our missions because they go into areas that nobody has really tracked that language to write out an alphabet, a a phonal system so that they can translate the scripture. We have have people who have translated in in audio version, like the Shuar language that they're using in Ecuador. They can take them in these units that are solar powered and it's the gospel in their language. But so many of them are illiterate, they couldn't read it if you handed it to them in a written form. But here's the Wycliffe translators. They go in and they stay. There's the, on their website, there's 2,000 languages. I said, there's 2,000 languages waiting to have the first scriptures translated into their language. 
It hasn't even been mapped out yet. They have to go in and figure out the language and what means what and the phonos systems and all of that. And that's what they're doing. On the other hand, we have like what is called the fire Bible, the full life study Bible that has all of these notes. And, the, and then there was an effort to take the fire Bible and translate it with the notes and the helps and everything else. It's a study Bible. <clears throat> Most of these languages don't have a study Bible. They have the Bible, but they don't have study helps. And so they took this initiative to, to do that. And if you go to Fire Bible, and the reason it became known as Fire Bible, the first time they handed Mandarin Chinese Bible to a group of Chinese pastors, and they began to study that Bible, the helps and all, they called it the Fire Bible. That's the Holy Ghost Bible. That's the Bible that stirs our spirits. That's the Fire Bible. And so they changed the name of it to Fire Bible. It's, it's really the full life study Bible, but now it's the Fire Bible. And if you go onto their website, these are the languages they've just translated that Bible study into. I want to say Odia, O-D-I-A, Punjabi, Albanian, Vietnamese, and Brother Davis, you'll be glad to hear, Marathi has been completed. Two of those are Indian languages. And if you go to their website, and they'll tell you all the languages where... They have done it with Hindi, Malayama, Punjabi, Punjabi, Tamil, Telugu. Did I say that right? It's an Indian language. You see, before there was a New Testament, before there was any word written about the life of Jesus, it, it, it was probably 30 or 40 years before anything was written after he actually walked this earth. And it was all in a way to, at the timing of it, to then condense it down into what we've got in that very small section of our Bible called the New Testament. In Acts 4.12, and I'll ask the praise team to come up. Acts 4.12, again, this is early in church history. This is, this is right after Jesus was raised from the dead. There's, none of this is being written at the time. This was all written later by Luke. This is his sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And he records this intense interrogation that Peter and John has with the Sanhedrin. And it was, it was withering. The, the interrogation was withering in chapter 4. And this is what Peter, this is the last thing Peter said to them. This is verse 12. He says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved he was referencing jesus and he and he had referenced it before that verse that he's the cornerstone that the builders you builders rejected him but god put him in and that's what the church is built on there's only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved it's the name of jesus we can't convert anyone but jesus converts people all the time through the power of the holy spirit somehow feel like it's my capacity to witness in a way that they will receive it does anybody else have that feeling it's like 
know, I got to earn the right to say something to them about Jesus, and I got to befriend them, and, and it's kind of like we're trying to condense it down into a social thing. It's not social, it's spiritual. Would to God that we find ourselves in a place. Now, I think, I think my, my sister Georgiana is radical. But I think maybe heaven thinks she's normal. Because people will call her house or her cell phone, and it's not a number, but she answers it. And they says, well, I got the wrong number. She says, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. It was God's design for you to call me, for me to tell you that Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for you. And, and she wit- she'll witness to a tree. But she's passionate about it. She's just like, How can they believe on him they have not heard? People don't become Christians by metamorphosis. They don't, don't, or or osmosis. They don't become Christians by just us hanging out with them. At some point, we have to have the message that Jesus died for your sins. He died for you. Would you stand with me? Lord, I, I pray this morning that you would this word, this word that is so powerful. The gospel is the power of God. It's your power to those who hear it, to the Jew first and Gentiles, to all people. This resonates with people. There's there's people who have an absence of hope in their lives and direction and, and they're turning to all kinds of substitutes and it's you they're looking for. It's you that they long for. Energize us, Lord, with the power of your own word that it just can't stay inside of us. We can't hide it in here when we know it is the power unto salvation. We need revival. The church needs revival. Our city, our state, our nation, our world need the move of your Holy Spirit an understatement we are in great need oh God forgive us for our lack so many times in this song we says I'm sorry Lord for this or that that takes our attention away and we say this morning we're sorry that we haven't been your voice like you want us to be I pray this morning that in front of us we had no idea that was you I pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit this morning I pray Holy Spirit you would come and take us outside of our personality limits you've called us all ordain us this morning ordain us to declare this spirit laden word that you died 
That's the hope of our world. That's the hope of this city. That's the hope for our neighbors. That's the hope for co-workers. That's the hope for our extended family. It is the only hope that we have. Everything else that we put security in seems vulnerable, seems weak, except you. You've never lessened in your power and strength to save the uttermost, those who are lost, to rescue an, an angry, vigilant Saul of Tarsus. You can convert him, you can convert anybody. We surrender ourselves to you. Let's just worship for a few moments.